Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. We are in Psalm 51 today. Psalm 51. We're kind of uh, on the back stretch of our series called Stuff Every Christian Should Know. We'll be wrapping that up in a couple of weeks. This morning, I think we're all the way up to installment number 11, maybe. But this morning's message is called The Consequences and Cleansing of Sin. The Consequences and cleansing of sin. Now, before we can even try to tackle this subject, we really have got to define the topic first, do we not? So, let me give you kind of a textbook definition of sin. Sin is basically an action that violates the moral standard of God. Or to put it um, more simply, anytime that we either willfully or unknowingly disobey God, it is sin. Now, in the Bible, you'll see a lot of synonyms uh, for the word sin. It's more or less synonymous with the words depravity, iniquity, uh, transgression, uh, trespass. But we're going to find in our text today that King David is just pouring out his heart to God after having committed some grievous sins. So, if you have the place, it's a fairly short psalm, so let's just read the whole thing together. Beginning in verse 1, David writes, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it to you. You are not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. And then the last two verses here, he prays a prayer for Jerusalem. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered 
on your altar. So let me give you just a little bit of background on this particular psalm. Psalm 51 is what Bible scholars would call a penitential psalm. Uh, the penitential psalms are those that express penitence, or in other words, the psalmist's sorrow over sin, regret over his spiritual failure. It's King David's prayer of repentance after the prophet Nathan had come to him and pointed out some, some terrible sins that David had committed. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he had covered it up by having Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed in battle. And so the words of Psalm 51 pour out of David's darkest point of self-awareness. He, he acknowledges the depth of his sin and guilt, and he pleads for God's mercy. So Psalm 51 is a, it's a personal prayer of confession, contrition, restoration. And for us, it, it kind of serves as a for lack of a better description, a sinner's guide to repentance. And I think the big idea for us that we should really get from this particular psalm is this, that forgiveness and restored joy in God can be yours for the asking. Forgiveness and restored joy in God can be yours for the asking. Okay, so what exactly happens then when a Christian sins? Well, before I answer that question, let me set one thing straight right up front. Now, we as Baptists, we hold to a doctrine called the security of the believer. Others might refer to it as the perseverance of the saints. But security of the believer basically means that when God saves you, you cannot become unsaved. That the power that's great enough to save you is also great enough to keep you. And that's why Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a wonderful promise. No one can snatch me from Jesus' hand, not even yourself. You cannot even snatch yourself out of God's hand. Well, that raises another question then. If we can't lose our salvation, does that mean we have nothing to lose when we sin? No, quite the contrary. Even though you are, uh, to paraphrase 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you're in Christ, you're a new creation, the old you has passed away, the new you has come. Even though you are now a partaker of the divine nature, as Peter said in 2 Peter 1, 4, guess what? You still have a habit to sin. And if you're bound to sin, well, you're bound to suffer. Whether you know Jesus or not, there are consequences. So, Christian, you're not going to lose your salvation when you sin, but there are still serious consequences to our rebellious choices. So, let's kind of unpack what all of that means. First part of the message, we're going to look at the consequences of sin in a believer's life, but then we're going to get to the good stuff and talk about the cleansing of sin and how we can be made right with God. All right, so the first thing this morning, the consequences of sin in a believer's life. Now, here's the first one. Sin dirties the soul. Look at verse 2. David says, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. You see, David is praying for cleansing because he feels dirty. 
Now here's a guy who dresses in royal robes. He sleeps on silk sheets. He, he bathes in a marble bathtub. He's perfumed with soap, and yet he feels dirty. You see, when we sin, we are going to feel spiritually dirty. We feel foolish because we're out of our normal element. We've done something that's contrary to our new nature. Now, you see, a pig has no concept of dirty because that's his element. <laughs> but you do because the filth of sin is no longer your element. See, there's a lot of folks in this world who are religious but they've never actually been cleansed. <laughs> I mean, you could say they've been starched in an iron, but never cleansed, never washed. They don't feel any different when they sin because they've never been washed clean by the blood of Jesus to begin with. So sin dirties the soul. Here's the second thing. Sin dominates the mind. Look at verse 3. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. In other words, what David had done was just etched into his consciousness day and night, always at the forefront of his mind. See, when we sin, we can try to ignore our sin. We can try to forget about it. But the Holy Spirit will not let us. In fact, that's part of the Holy Spirit's job, to convict us of sin. You can try to occupy your mind with other things, but the sin is there, either in your conscious mind or your subconscious mind. And it may manifest itself in some interesting ways. It may uh, result in, in an irritable temper, the inability to concentrate, sleepless nights, maybe just a lack of joy. You see, sin brings two kinds of wounds to the human soul. There's guilt and there's sorrow. Now, sorrow is a clean wound. You know, a wound that given time and the work of the Holy Spirit will ultimately heal. Guilt, on the other hand, is a dirty wound that festers and festers until it is finally cleansed. So sin dominates the mind. Here's the third thing. Sin disgraces the Lord. Look at verse 4. Against you, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. You see, as much as we like to think otherwise, our sin not only has consequences for us, but for the people around us as well. Yeah, we, we try to justify sin some, sometimes thinking, oh, well, this won't affect anybody but me. Uh, no, it's not the way it works. It will affect the people around you. Think about this. Uh, David, he sinned against, well, he sinned against his own body. He sinned against Uriah, the guy he had sent to the front line so he would be killed, you know, to cover up what he had done with Bathsheba. He, he sinned against his wife and family. He sinned against the very nation of Israel. And yet it's interesting that in this psalm, none of these are actually mentioned. David saw his sin for what it was, a slap in the face of a holy God. And he realized that he didn't simply cheat on his wife. He cheated on God. He committed spiritual adultery. And it dawned on David that, that he had sinned against his first love. You see, a true believer is going to feel bad about what his sin does to his relationship with God. An unbeliever, on the other hand, uh, he's only going to feel bad about what his sin does to him, the negative consequences to him. Uh, my two oldest sons, Ryan and Ben, who are 27 and 25 now, I remember when they were toddlers and uh, bath time would come around, 
I was always one to try to kill two proverbial birds with one stone, so I'd toss them both in the bathtub together, and uh, invariably there would be water splashed and messes made. And, and there were occasions when I would have to leave the bathroom and leave them alone in the tub, and I would, I'd say something like, don't let me catch you getting water on the floor. But you know, in retrospect, I really wasn't teaching them that disobedience might affect their relationship with me. In fact, I wasn't even teaching them that their actions were wrong. All that I was teaching them was that getting caught was wrong. <laughs> so their response to getting caught in an act of disobedience would be very self-focused. But you see, a true believer feels bad about what his sin does to God. When a servant disobeys, what's he afraid of? Punishment. When a son disobeys, he hurts because of his father's displeasure. So when you sin, what hurts you more? Getting caught or hurting your heavenly father? See, the answer to that question is going to be a pretty huge indicator as to the true nature of your relationship with God. So sin dirties the soul, sin dominates the mind, sin disgraces the Lord. Here's the fourth one. Sin depresses the heart. Look at the first part of verse 8. David pleads, let me hear joy and gladness. He's miserable. In fact, in verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Not my salvation, the joy of my salvation. Now, there's only one thing that can take that joy from your heart. That's your sin. Your own sin. No one can take joy from you unless you empower them to. You want to see if somebody's joy is truly real? See how they react to negative circumstances. You see, when a person is squeezed by life and the world, what comes out? No, that's what they're full of. You know, if life squeezes someone and filth comes out, well, then you know their heart and mind are filled with filth. If life squeezes you and, and, and anger comes out, then you know that you're full of anger. You squeeze somebody and joy comes out, you know that they're full of Jesus. If you're really full of the Spirit, your joy can be constant. Now, understand something, church. There is a difference between happiness and joy. All right, happiness depends on what happens. That's why it's called happiness, okay? That's why sorrowful and disturbing events are called mishaps, okay? Happiness is based on the external. It's based on circumstances, but joy is internal. It's based on your trust in Christ, and nobody can take that away from you except you. Now, think about this. You really wouldn't want to be happy 100% of the time. What? Now think about it. The fact is, you cannot appreciate happiness until you've known sorrow. I mean, if you were happy all the time, it's kind of like having ice cream for every single meal. You know, and that's good. I mean, I'm known to have an occasional bowl of Bluebell, or better yet, Brahms, if we ever get one here in Texarkana. But you see, if you never ate anything else, how can you truly 
experience and appreciate ice cream. Even Jesus wasn't happy all the time. And there's three different places in the New Testament where it talks about how Jesus wept. But Jesus was still full of joy because he was full of the Spirit. And in John uh, chapter 15, Jesus told his disciples to remain in him. And in verse 11, he says, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And then you've got the Apostle Paul, who wrote a number of his epistles to the churches from prison. He's in prison when he writes Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Or like what the late Adrian Rogers used to always say, that happiness is a thermometer that registers conditions. Joy is a thermostat that regulates conditions. You see, sometimes God gives us joy, not necessarily to take away the pain, but to help us bear the pain. As Christian humorist Barbara Johnson would say, pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. So, sin dirties the soul, it dominates the mind, it disgraces the Lord, it depresses the heart, and here's another one. Sin diseases the body. Look at the end of verse 8. David says, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. What exactly is David saying here? Well, it's a poetic figure of speech that he's using here. But basically, David's saying, God, you're squeezing the life out of me. I feel it. See, God doesn't let us off the hook. You know, he doesn't kind of wink at us and, and casually regard our sin and say, oh, that's all right. I'll let it slide. You see, God squeezed David that much tighter because of the sin in his life. My dearly departed dad used to frequently say, God won't let you down, but God won't let you off, and God won't let you go. Now, David's distress seems to actually be affecting his health. I mean, how, how long can that sort of pressure that David described continue until it begins to affect a person's body? You know, maybe you've had times in your life when, when your emotions actually dictated your health. And stress can do all sorts of things to the human body. And there's a, there's a term you're probably familiar with, psychosomatic illness. Psycho meaning mind, soma meaning body. Uh, that basically means that the, the mind can make the body sick. People with, with heightened emotional upheaval or, or psychiatric dist distress, will, they'll experience symptoms that, that have no apparent medical explanation. You know, stuff like fatigue and insomnia and aches and pains and, and high blood pressure and trouble breathing and indigestion and, and headaches and, and migraines. But you see, the mind affecting the body is really nothing new. In Proverbs 17, 22, Solomon wrote, A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. So joy equals medicine. Misery equals poison. Sin dirties the soul. It dominates the mind. It disgraces the Lord. It depresses the heart. It diseases the body. And... Sin defiles the spirit. Look at verse 10. 
David cries out to God, says, God, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, here's a question for you. Who do you think is more pleasant to be around? An unsaved sinner or a Christian who's out of fellowship with God? Hmm. I can tell you this. There are a lot of Christians who aren't walking in right fellowship with God that can be downright cantankerous. I mean, hard, hard to deal with. Some of the most irritating people you can ever encounter are Christians who are spiritually out of joint, out of God's will, and nothing seems to please them. Oh, the church is too cold. Oh, the church is too hot. <laughs> That's nothing new. Uh, back when my dad, years ago, when he was pastoring in the Oklahoma Panhandle, the church he pastored, the main entrance into the sanctuary actually came out right behind the organ. And on the wall by the organ was a thermostat. It was the dial type. And if a church member walked into the auditorium and it was too cold, crank up that heat. If somebody walked in and it was too hot, crank it back down. And it was back and forth and back and forth. And I give my dad credit. He did something really smart. He had an air conditioning guy come to the church, install another thermostat in a secret location, and left the other one there as a dummy. <laughs> so that people would come, oh, it's too cold, and play with the thermostat. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but people just want to complain about stuff. It's too hot, it's too cold. The church just wants my money. There's not enough this, there's too much that. The services are too long, the pews are too hard. The music's too loud. The music's too old. The music's too new. I mean, some people aren't happy unless they're unhappy. They, they always seem to have to have that need to criticize something. Church, you want to be happy in Jesus? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Sin dirties the soul. It dominates the mind. It disgraces the Lord. It depresses the heart, diseases the body, defiles the spirit. And here's the last one. Sin destroys the testimony. Look at verse 14. David pledges, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. You see, you Christian, you have a testimony to give, both with your life and with your lips. You ever wonder why some people don't sing in worship services? Now, I, I get if it's a brand new song and you don't know it. I get some people who are afraid to sing because, well, they don't sing so well and they don't want other people to hear them sing. But you know, a lot of people don't sing because they're filled with sin. They've lost their song because they've lost their testimony. You see, in verse 15, David says, Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. His lips had been sealed because he had destroyed his testimony. And then in verses 12 and 13, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. And then 13, he says, Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. So no joy, no testimony. No testimony, no soul winning, no edification of the body of Christ because sin destroys our testimony. There's a lost world on the outside looking in at we believers. 
And a lot of them are saying, why should I want what those phony Christians want? Those hypocrites don't live any better than I do. See, that's how sin destroys a testimony. All right, so I know this is pretty heavy stuff. It's kind of on the negative side, but those are the consequences of sin in a believer's life. Let's talk about the cleansing of sin in a believer's life. The cleansing of sin. Some years back at our former church, uh, Dennis Schwanberg, the uh, pastor and Christian comedian, came to speak. I remember the story. He was telling about a, an old-time Methodist preacher from, from way back. And he stepped into the pulpit and he began his message by saying, What shall we do with sin? What shall we do with sin? And after saying that a few times, somebody in the, in the congregation said, Nip it! Nip it in the bud! <laughs> There's actually some, there's some truth in that. Obviously, the best path forward for us is to take steps to prevent us from sinning before temptation ever comes. Taking steps to guard our hearts, to avoid certain situations that might trigger temptation. But how do we make things right after we've already sinned? Well, David's words also give us guidance in this matter. Four steps. Four steps to getting right with God, okay? Here's the first one. Confidence. Look at verse 1. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. Now, faithful love, it comes from a, a weird-sounding Hebrew word, chesed, okay? Now, it's kind of got that kind of K on the beginning. If you say it too hard, it's chesed, but it's really chesed. Okay, that's not, that sounds the same to me. It's really tough because with the Hebrew, there's supposed to be that little that K thing, but if you say it too hard, it sounds like a cat with a, you know, a hairball on his throat. Anyway, but here's what the word means. Uh, it can often be translated as lasting faithfulness or even covenant loyalty. Uh, it's like a joint obligation between relatives or friends or a host and a guest, a, a master and a servant. And it indicates a, a perpetual sense of closeness. So what was the source of David's confidence? It was God's faithful love. David was confident that God was faithful to keep his promises so that he knew uh, for a multitude of sins, there would also be a multitude of mercies that as Paul said in Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounded more. And that gave him a sense of confidence and value. You see, church, God doesn't love us because we're valuable. We're valuable because God loves us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, knowing what he knew about God, about his faithful love, that gave David a sense of confidence, of value. Folks, there is nothing in this life that you can ever do to make God love you less than he does right now. So the first step to, to getting right with God is, is confidence. The second one is this, confession. Look at verse 3. For I am conscious of my rebellion. My rebellion, David says. He owns it. 
Because when it comes to sin, you know what? God doesn't accept any alibis. But I love what 1 John 1, 9 says, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Now that word confess in the original Greek text, it comes from a word homologeo, okay? Homos meaning the same, lego meaning to speak or to say. So that word confess basically means to say the same thing. Or more simply put, it means to agree. Eric, you have harbored a bad attitude towards your brother. Yes, God, I agree. I agree that my actions were sinful. Now, unfortunately, we have a, a human tendency to want to make excuses. You remember when Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3, they got caught in a transgression. God confronts them. Adam blames both God and his wife. Well, the woman you gave me made me do it. And of course, Eve blamed the serpent. And she kind of used the, the, the Flip Wilson de defense. Do you remember? Okay, I'm dating myself with this reference. Do y'all remember the early 1970s, a variety show with Flip Wilson? If you remember Flip Wilson, just, just nod. Okay. He had this character named Geraldine. And Geraldine would often say, the devil made me do it. That ain't the way it works, folks. The devil can't make you do anything. It's your choice. But everybody wants to make excuses. But here's what the Bible says. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Here's what it says about confession. He who covers his sin, in other words, he who hides, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses them will have mercy. See, when we try to hide from God, when we try to cover our sin, God uncovers it. He exposes it. When we uncover it, He covers it. He covers it with the blood of Jesus. Now, confession does not first come without conviction. And that's what the Holy Spirit's all about. I mean, one of the things that He does is to convict us of sin. He says, this is what you've done, Eric. He lets me know that I have done messed up. Of course, I already knew that before He convicted me of it. Now, don't confuse conviction with accusation, however. See, only the devil is going to accuse you for things that you have already asked forgiveness for. So if you're feeling guilty for something that you've already confessed, well, that's just misery that you've heaped on yourself. Either that, or you've been listening to the accusations of the enemy. So your second step to getting right with God is confession. Here's the third one. Cleansing. All right, look at verse 2. Completely wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Yes, sin does make you feel dirty, but after your confession, it's like God gives you a spiritual bath. You don't have to carry around, carry around the, the baggage and the weight of your sin any longer. I love 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or as God speaking through the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 1, 18, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. <laughs> Isn't it nice to know that God washes away the stain of our sin? 
never to be seen again. Now, some years ago, my wife, who is awesome, she surprised me with the most excellent birthday present. She conspired with an old college buddy of mine to procure two tickets to a Green Bay Packers game. And so I flew up to Wisconsin to meet my old college buddy, and uh, we went to a Green Bay Packers San Francisco 49ers game. And of course, I did you know everything there was to experience. Went to the Packers Hall of Fame because I mean it's a piece of NFL history. Even if you don't like the Packers, it's 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 history. Before the game, though, I made the mistake of going into the pro shop. They've got all the swag and they, all the merch, you know. And uh, <clears throat> something catches my eye. It was one of those authentic throwback jerseys from the 1960s, you know, thick, thick material, three-quarter length sleeves with the numbers sewn on and the name Star on the back, number 15, Bart Star. And I bought it. Now, it was months after the fact when I actually told my wife how much I paid for it. <laughs> I dropped 150 on that, 150 bucks, y'all. And my, my friend Ben, he was kind of aiding and abetting. He's like, oh, this is a once-in-a-lifetime chance. You'll never have this chance again. I'm like, fine. So whip out the old American Express. And I was so proud of that jersey. But shortly after buying it, something happened. I spilled barbecue sauce on it. <laughs> okay. Now, I scrubbed, and I scrubbed, and I scrubbed, and I scrubbed, and, 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 and got most of it. But even today... I mean, this is, wow, 20 years later. It's been a long, that went fast. Now, 20 years later, there's still a, a slight hint of a stain there, a stain that is never, ever going to come out. Not the case with your sin. What can wash away the stain of your sin? Okay, it's not OxyClean, it's not Woolite. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is no stain that his blood will not remove. Apostle John in 1 John 1, 7 says, The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So those steps to making things right with God include confidence in him, confession, cleansing. Here's the last one, consecration. I will teach the rebellious your ways, David pledges in verse 13. You see, God doesn't cleanse us just so we can sit around and be clean. He cleanses us to put us back into service. Now, consecration, you know, in Jewish culture, that was, that was cleansing someone or something from sin or from ritual impurity and then dedicating that person or thing for a specific purpose. Now, remember, church, when we trust Christ as Savior, we are saved from the power and the penalty of sin. That's what we're saved from. But we're saved to powerfully serve Him. Yes, we're forgiven of sin. We're cleansed by Christ's blood. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are consecrated to fulfill His purposes for us. You want to know how David got into trouble in the first place? Yeah, he wasn't doing what he should have been doing as a king. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 says, In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So, King David 
instead of leading his men and protecting Israel, he's strolling around the palace watching some woman bathe. You see, if you're doing what you ought to be doing, then there's no way you can possibly be doing what you shouldn't be doing. I think you can avoid the temptation altogether if you're doing what you ought to be doing. Four steps to restoration. Confidence in God's love. Confession of your sin. Cleansing by Jesus' blood. And consecration for God's purposes. Now, we've spent quite a bit of time this morning talking about the consequences of sin in a believer's life. But what about the consequences of sin for a non-believer, someone who's never trusted Christ? It's a very sober reality that we see in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It says that the wages of sin is death. Death, meaning spiritual death, eternal separation from God in a place called hell, a place of eternal misery, torment, utter despair. But you see, we don't have to deal with the wages of sin because that verse goes on to say, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.